If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Who was the world's first assassin? How have assassination methods changed through history? And do assassinations generally achieve their aims? Well, in today's podcast episode, you'll be hearing from historian John Withington, who analysed 266 assassinations for his new book, Assassin's Deeds, A History of Assassination from Ancient Egypt to the Present Day. He spoke about some of history's most notorious killings to our digital section editor, Rachel Dinning. So I thought we could start the podcast with you giving us a definition of what an assassin is one is a when is a killing an assassination and you know it's not just a murder it is an assassination well i looked at things like the cambridge and oxford dictionaries and i came to the conclusion that um all assassinations are murders but not all murders are assassinations and so the kind of working definition that i've used for the book is that Assassination is the killing of someone powerful, important or famous because they're powerful, important or famous. So if it was, say, a a crime of passion, uh, that wouldn't necessarily be an assassination. I I felt that assassination had a kind of a kind of sudden out of the blue quality to it, which would not apply to someone who was already in the custody of the person who did away with them. So, for example, I didn't consider that Edward II or Richard II were assassinated, though both of them may have been murdered. I didn't consider that Charles I was assassinated, though he was, of course, executed. So that that was why I've gone for that particular definition. I appreciate not everybody will agree with my definition, but I felt it was something where you had to draw a line somewhere. And I had this, this notion that the kind of sudden out of the blue quality was part of assassination. So you've considered 
dozens, if not hundreds of cases for your for your book, Assassin's Deeds. Um, and having looked at such a what you've such a comprehensive overlook, you go from the you know ancient world, ancient Egypt, right through to modern day. Um, can you say, having looked at all of these different time periods, that assassination was more prevalent in certain parts of the world or in certain cultures? Um, when were you most at risk of being assassinated? I suppose is my question. Uh, I looked at 266 assassinations. And uh, so uh, the short answer is I've, I've not got any kind of risk profile of when you were most at risk of being assassinated. Oddly, uh, I, I did have look at the geography of assassinations. Uh, it so happens that Italy came out as the assassination capital uh, in the 260 that I looked at. I think there were 30 in Italy, but a large number of those, I think it was about 23, were in the Roman Empire. Um, also, uh, the, the majority that I looked at were in Europe. But again, that may be more to do just with the fact that um, we've got better information about those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. When I was reading your book, the chapter um, that looked at the Roman period in particular, um, that was the chapter where I was like, you know what, if I, if I was a leader, I really wouldn't want to be a leader in the Roman Empire. I feel like the risk of being assassinated or stabbed in the back is far, far too great. I think you're right. And there was, um, it was a Russian who said about the Russian Empire that their method of government was despotism tempered by assassination. But actually, that was far more true of the Roman Empire. The problem with the Roman Empire was that there were no rules of succession, really. The, the Roman Empire just kind of appeared Um, And so they had to kind of make it up as they went along. And there was no rule as to who was going to be the next emperor. And 17 were assassinated. The ones I looked at, 17 assassinations, 15 of those were carried out by the emperor's own bodyguard or by his own troops. And it was Augustus, the first Roman emperor, who said the most terrible thing is that most people have to be afraid of their enemies, but we, we emperors, have to be afraid of our friends and those closest to us. One thing that I found particularly interesting was there's a, you sort of discussed the ethics of assassination, which sounds a bit paradoxical, um, but there's been various philosophers over the years um, who've, you know, they've posited this argument that actually assassination, if you're wanting to get rid of a tyrant, um, is an ethical way of doing it because you're just, you know, you're killing one person as opposed to going to war and risking or hundreds of thousands of, you know, deaths. Um how have people seen assassination through history in ethical terms? Well, uh, there was this notion of tyrannicide, um, that if a ruler is a tyrant, if they abuse their position, then they lose their moral authority. And then some people held, including Plato, for example, that it was then legitimate to kill them, to, to, hence tyrannicide. And that, so that goes back to ancient Greece at least, possibly earlier, but we certainly know that it was being talked about in ancient Greece. Um, And that notion got quite a boost, actually, at the time of the Reformation, because the Reformation divided Christendom into two warring factions, essentially, the Catholics and the Protestants, who each saw the other lot as heretics. Um, And so the, the 
notion of tyrannicide got quite a revival at that time. And in the French wars of religion, for example, so Henry III and Henry IV of France were both killed by uh, extreme Catholics. And William the Silent, the leader of the Dutch revolt against the Netherlands, uh, against the Spanish Empire in the 16th century, he too was killed um, by a Roman Catholic f- fanatic. So that was one notion, the idea of tyrannicide. But uh, you say the other one, quite an interesting one, the, which um, the great Chinese writer, if Sun Tzu anyway, he was a great general. Nobody's entirely sure whether he actually wrote the famous book, The Art of War, but um, it's been credited to him. So Sun Tzu, he was the person who argued that assassination was more cost effective. Uh, so uh, going to war is a terribly expensive thing. So if you can just kill your enemy, an individual, an important individual, that's much more economical. And out of that grew the notion that you've talked about, this idea that actually there's also it's also morally better just to kill the important leader on the opposite side rather than to kill thousands of ordinary soldiers. And, and of course, in war, it's not just soldiers who get killed, it's nearly always ordinary citizens as well. So those were the, those were the kind of some of the ethical uh, arguments that went on about assassination. And of course, we've already touched on how um, assassinations could be, you know, it could be your own bodyguard that turns on you or is bribed by someone. Um, What sort of steps would would people take? What would you, if you were a king or an emperor or something, how do you sort of prevent this from happening? So bodyguards was one, uh, one way of doing it. And that's one that's gone back I suppose you know to the the, uh, the very earliest of times, uh, but but as we said, um, if you looked at those those Roman emper- emperors that I talked about, out of seventeen, uh, fifteen were, were murdered by their own troops or their own bodyguards. There's been more technological approaches taken more recently, of course. So. Um, uh, Edward Shevardnadze, the president of Georgia, in 1998, there was an attempt made on him when he was driving in his armor-plated car, and his armor-plated car saved his life. Uh, but the, unarm- the armor-plated car did not save the life of a German industrialist called, Alf- called Alfred Herrhausen, who was blown up in 1989 by the Red Army faction, often known as the Bader-Meinhof Gang. Um, the <laughs> In the 1950s, the French had a rather an interesting approach. So um, there are a lot of Russian émigrés in France who left Russia at the time of the revolution, didn't much like the communist regime. So in the 1950s in France, if Soviet dignitaries were visiting, these potential troublemakers among the émigrés would be very strongly advised and invited to go and stay in an expensive country hotel at the expense of the French government while the Russian uh, visitors were in the country. Uh, but but uh, you, you talked about the steps people take. In, in some ways, the more interesting thing is the steps people don't take. So, uh, so Abraham Lincoln, uh, the night he was assassinated, um, his regular bodyguard was off doing another job and he had a stand-in bodyguard who had already been um, reprimanded, I think, for falling asleep on duty. And and Lincoln let his stand-in bodyguard go off for a drink. And so when, uh, when John Wilkes Booth arrived at the presidential box to shoot him, there was no bodyguard to be seen. Um, and I suppose that kind of brings me on to like one of the biggest questions with your book, which is... Um, do assassinations 
work? Um, it's a bit of a, sounds a bit of a weird question, but as someone who's analysed hundreds of assassinations, all committed for various reasons, are most of them successful? If you had to come down on one side or the other, do assassins generally achieve their aims? Well, as I said, I analysed 266 assassinations. Now, all of them worked in the sense that the victim died. Um, But what I tried also to analyse is whether the assassin would have been happy with the outcome of the assassination. Um, Disraeli, for example, said after after Lincoln's assassination that assassination never works. Well, for what it's worth, and this is plainly a very subjective decision, isn't it? How, you know, trying to evaluate would a particular assassin have been happy with this particular outcome? But for what it's worth, I I made a judgment in about 215 cases. And I, and the judgment I made was that in about 132, the assassin would have been happy. Uh, but in 83, they would not have been happy. There was a study actually that, um, American an American team did in 2007. This is slightly more precise than the one that I did. They looked at 300 assassination attempts and they looked at a sort of narrower question than I did, really. Um, and they concluded that killing democratic leaders had very little effect, but that if you killed, if you assassinated an autocrat, that had a 13% greater chance of that country transitioning to democracy if the plot succeeded than if it failed. What's an example of an assassination where it had perhaps unintended consequences? So maybe the assassin succeeded in killing their target, but um, you might consider the assassination to be a failure in terms of, of how things unfolded afterwards, if that makes sense. I suppose in a way, the classic example of unintended consequences was perhaps the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Now, um, there are arguments about whether that, quotes caused the First World War or not, but it certainly was an important factor in kicking off the First World War. So you couldn't have a, a much more momentous consequence. And although there are, although there are arguments, or some historians will argue, well, the First World War was going to happen anyway, but what we do know is that at least some of the assassins who'd killed Franz Ferdinand, felt that they were responsible for the First World War. And one of them said, uh, if I'd known what was going to happen, I would have sat down on our bombs and blown myself to bits. So I don't think any, I don't think any of those assassins who killed Franz Ferdinand believed this was going to lead to the most dreadful conflict the world had seen up to that point. So that's a pretty sobering, unintended consequence. I'm, I'm reminded of... Uh, what is Gandalf, I think, says in The Lord of the Rings when he's... Oh, I love a Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think that um, aren't they arguing about whether they should kill Gollum? And Gandalf says, proceed very carefully because not all ends are known even to the wise. And, uh, and um, that Franz Ferdinand is a terribly sobering example of that. Another thing that often happens, of course, is that you turn the victim into a martyr. Perhaps the the classic case was Thomas Beckett's murder. So uh, a fairly routine struggle between church and state in 12th century Europe, you know, that happened the whole time. The church 
was a powerful institution. The monarchy was a powerful institution. Very often in, in a number of countries, they, they were loggerheads. And apart, apart from Beckett's assassination, there was a very similar one where um, uh, a Polish uh, archbishop was murdered in very, very similar circumstances by his king, possibly at his king's own hand. Uh, but that both he and Beckett then became martyrs. And, and Beckett, of course, became um, one of the most revered martyrs in Christendom, King Henry II, when he found out that his knights had killed Becket, even though they may have said that he kind of told them to, uh, he went into solitude for three days, um, not quite knowing what to do, I think. And by the time he had emerged from this solitude, Becket was already an international figure, a martyr. You know, pe people were already attributing... Um, miracles to him they 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 dipped their handkerchief in his blood and said that it had had these miraculous qualities so creating martyrs is certainly perhaps an even more striking example than than becket was a man called edward the martyr who was a uh, young king of england um, who was not obvious saintly material he was prone to the most violent rages and people close to him were terrified of him but in 978 he was assassinated uh, and uh, he he immediately became Saint Edward. There are churches named after him, and he became a martyr. And his status as a martyr undermined the prestige of his successor, who was became known to history as as Ethelred the Unready. We, we've already talked a bit about what people could do to protect themselves against assassination if you were a leader. Um, it almost seems like one protection would be making yourself loved by the people so that, you know, the protection of if, if all the people love you, they're going to be pretty furious if you end up dead. So that's a disincentive to to try and knock you off your spot. Yes. Well, well, that was what Machiavelli um, advocated. Machiavelli, of course, regarded as the, the most cynical of all political thinkers. But one of the things he said, yes, is make yourself loved by the people and uh, then no assassin will dare to move against you. Maybe, though, making yourself loved by all of the people um, is easier said than done. Uh, so prob probably if you're a leader, uh, it's probably pretty hard to get unanimous approval from all of the people. I think another another point about unintended consequences is that, um, take for example, Martin Luther King and J.F. Kennedy. Uh, now, both of, both of their deaths, both of their murders are shrouded in controversy to this day with arguments about who really did it and if they did it, who was behind them. But I think one thing, one thing, one thing we can be fairly confident about is that those who wanted Martin Luther King or JFK dead were probably not supporters of the civil rights movement. But I think it's generally felt that their deaths actually did contribute to the advancement of the civil rights movement in America. Um, I was hoping that we could maybe look at some cases in more depth. Um, maybe a good place to start would be you telling our listeners who... The first known assassination is, or as far as we understand it to be anyway. The first one I could find was an Egyptian pharaoh called Teti, who was assassinated about 4,300 years ago. But I, I know how well-informed your podcast listeners are, so maybe somebody's found an earlier one. I'd be very interested to hear if they have. 
But this is this was the earliest one I could find, and um, an Egyptian ancient Egyptian historian wrote about it about three hundred BC, so two thousand years after it happened, but possibly drawing on sources that have since been lost to us. And the historian said that Teti was quote murdered by his bodyguard. In addition to this, though, there is also some circumstantial evidence. And and the circumstantial evidence is that a number of senior officials had their memorials defaced or their remains moved after their deaths. And this, in ancient Egypt, was a terrible punishment because it meant that you would wander homeless in the afterlife. Uh, We know that Teti had come to power at a time of considerable turbulence, and we also knew that he beefed up his security. He got more bodyguards, though that maybe backfired. What are the most popular weapons used in assassinations? And I suppose, have there been any notable changes um, across history in this regard? Well, up to about the end of the 19th century, stabbing was certainly the number one method. um, And It was only really overtaken, as I say, around about the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And then firearms took over. And so I looked at 100 assassinations from the beginning of the First World War to the present day, and 66 of those involve using firearms. But interestingly, we often think of the Day of the Jackal, don't we? That's the Jackal, perhaps the most famous assassin in literature, um, who was a sniper, of course, but actually, although firearms was the most popular, uh, they were very rarely snipers. They were near; it was nearly always the handgun at close quarters rather than the sniper's rifle. But certainly, yes, in in recent times, the that's been the big technological change is that the gun has taken over from stabbing. Um, next, most popular in recent times was the bomb. So explosive used in 18 out of the 100 assassinations I looked at in the modern age. Poisoners had longevity. So poison was being used in the very, very earliest assassinations uh, and still being used. Uh, As we know, uh, Sergei Skripal, though Sergei Skripal survived, and uh, Alexander Litvinenko recently. So poison had possibly a bit of a revival. Um, Peculiar thing about bombs, though, bombs almost not used at all, really, until about 1880, when Tsar Alexander II of Russia was assassinated by a bomb in 1881. But explosives made a very strange, mysterious appearance in 1567 in the murder of Lord Darnley, who was the estranged husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. And in circumstances which are still baffling to this day, Lord Darnley, the house where Lord Darnley was staying in Edinburgh was blown up by gunpowder. And Lord Darnley was found dead in the grounds, but he'd been strangled. So fascinating. It's like, did someone did someone murder him, then try and cover it up? Did did he, you know, did the explosion not work and someone had to dispatch him afterwards? There's loads of questions, isn't there? Was was Mary, Queen of Scots, involved is my question. Uh, certainly many people suspected that she was. But, but if I remember rightly, there was a, a forensic examination uh, in the fairly recent past, the last 10 years or so, uh, which I think concluded that 
she probably wasn't. I think that was the the conclusion. But mm. it, it's you know it's hard it's hard enough, isn't it, for for forensic experts to to solve murders often um, if they've happened a couple of weeks ago. So when it's trying to do it across the centuries, four hundred and fifty years ago, another, it's another challenge. You mentioned about how when we think of being assassinated by gun, we think sniper, because that's sort of the stereotypical image that we've got of, of an assassin. It's, you know, Hollywood has sort of had a part in creating this image. And on that note, is our modern idea of an assassin, are we completely off the mark? When you think of assassin, you you, th- you might think of a James, an anti-James Bond type figure who's been highly trained, moves in the shadows. You know, the kind of image of an assassin that I'm thinking of. I mentioned the jackal, the day of the jackal. And I think, I, I think the jackal is arguably the most famous assassination. And I don't want to give too much away to people who've not read the book, but um, he has a number of characteristics. Three characteristics strike me about the jackal. One is meticulous planning. A large part of the book is about the extraordinarily detailed, careful, meticulous planning that goes into the assassination plan. The second thing is, it's strictly business. He has been hired to murder President de Gaulle of France, and he's doing it because he's been paid a lot of money. And the third thing is, he tries to do it as a sniper, tries to shoot him from a distance. Now, as I say, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but he fails. In spite of the meticulous planning, he fails. So how typical are those three factors? Meticulous planning, strictly business, done from a distance. Uh, most most uh, assassination attempts are not as well planned as, as that. And uh, you get very peculiar things like when, when the emperor, I mentioned the Empress Elizabeth, uh, when, when she was assassinated in Geneva, she was the second choice victim, kind of off the substitute's bench. The the assassin, an Italian anarchist, had gone to Geneva to try to assassinate somebody else, and he didn't show up. And then the assassin found that the Empress Elizabeth was in town and thought, well, while I'm here, I might as well kill her. Um, So the the meticulously planned assassination is not as common uh, as you might think. The strictly business is... Again, relatively unusual. 266 assassinations that I analysed, and 18 were hired assassins who had no particular ideological motive. They were just doing it because they were paid. Only 18. And only 19 of the killings were not done at close quarters. So it was the, even with, obviously with stabbing, you pretty well got to get up close and personal. But even with hand, even with guns, it was the handgun at close quarters rather than the sniper at a distance. And there's some good reasons for that. You know, um, in the day of the jackal, what happens? It's been beautifully planned. The jackal shoots absolutely the right shot in the perfect position. And just at the crucial moment, President de Gaulle bends down to kiss the cheek of a war veteran and the bullet misses. And that really happened in real life. In 1800, King George III of England was in the London theatre and somebody took a pot shot at him. And just as the shot went off, George III bowed his head to acknowledge the, the applause of the audience, and the shot, the shot missed. So sniping is very, very difficult. 
think also assassination is difficult. You know, if we, I, I keep mentioning Franz Ferdinand, but it's such a significant assassination. Um, there were six assassins around the route that Franz Ferdinand took, and only one of them managed to actually throw a bomb at him. And again, that this was um, a case, they didn't actually succeed in their initial plan. They did have a plan, but they didn't succeed in that. And it was only an opportunistic moment later that day. That's absolutely correct. And the interesting thing about Franz Ferdinand is that actually it was relatively well planned. There were six assassins uh, deployed along his route. Uh, there was another, there was a kind of a floating assassin who went between the other assassins, offering support, making sure everything was going according to plan. Um, they'd been given cyanide pills to take. And um, so it, it was it was pretty well-planned operation. But on that fir- on Franz Ferdinand's first pass in his open-top car, um, only one of them actually managed to do anything. One of them threw a bomb which hit the car and injured some of Franz Ferdinand's retinue, though neither he nor his wife was injured. Um, a couple of them, a couple of the would-be assassins tried to take their uh, cyanide pills when the crowd chased after them, uh, but um, the, the cyanide pills were past their use-by dates, and so it didn't work. Uh, anyway, so it looked as though the whole thing had been a failure, and one of the assassinations, called Prinkip, uh, had gone to a cafe to bemoan the apparent failure of their attempt. Meanwhile, uh, Franz Ferdinand decided that he wished to go to hospital to visit the member of the retinue who'd been injured. And so, uh, against advice from some people, he set out again in the open-top car with his wife to go to the hospital. But the person who'd been injured was also was the organiser. He'd organised the trip, organised the motorcade. And with him out of the way, unfortunately, there was a mix-up and they took a wrong turning and the cars all came to a halt. And Prinkip was in his cafe bemoaning what had happened, looked outside, and there was Franz Ferdinand's car parked outside the cafe. But couldn't he believe couldn't believe his, his luck. luck. <laughs> went out and shot Franz Ferdinand and his wife dead. Mm-hmm. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It all worked perfectly. 8th of November 1939, the time bomb went off exactly at the time that Georg Elsa had planned. It brought down the ceiling on the speaker's podium, killed eight people, but Hitler wasn't there. Because World War II had broken out by that point and Hitler had had to change his schedule. And so by the time the bomb exploded, he had left the building 13 minutes before. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. It's such an interesting case because it was the complete opposite of this slick operation they'd planned. Um, And Franz Ferdinand's death came about because of a bout of good luck, really. So one thing I'm curious about is the character profile of assassins more generally. Um, You've studied 266 cases. Can you identify any common personality traits amongst these killers um like who is most likely to become an assassin men so of the 266 assassinations that i looked at only nine women were involved um, so that's that's the first and probably the clearest thing you can say um there was an interesting profiling study done in the united states in 1999 and they looked at 83 would be assassins over a period of about 50 years And they didn't come up with simple answers, but they were mainly white men. Half of them were single, 47 of them, so more than half had no children. And 29, interestingly, had at some some point threatened to kill themselves. Um, So they, they give a word of caution. They say that there is, quote, no single profile. But one thing that they did find in common was often a difficulty in coping with life's problems. And they said, and I found this a very eye-catching phrase, those who see themselves doing well in life rarely attempt assassinations. Interesting. So the sort of idea that assassination is undertaken by sort of a lone wolf person slightly on the outskirts of society um, in this study sort of has a little bit of backing, I suppose. Yes. Again, I found that um, of my 266 assassinations, 58 were carried out by lone assassins, though even some of them had help or financial support 
from a wider network. Um, I suppose if you want to look at the classic kind of lone wolf, I suppose Mark Chapman, you know, who killed John Lennon in 1980, he was uh, he was a classic kind of lone wolf, and did it completely off his own bat. No one else involved in the project. Um, made easier, of course, by the fact that John Lennon had no bodyguard. Uh, was Lee Harvey Oswald a, a lone assassin? Um, uh, we 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 don't we don't know, but he may but he may have been. But I, but I think as I've said before, um, assassination is complicated and difficult. We talked about Franz Ferdinand. You know that it required the most extraordinary stroke of luck for those assassins to kill him, and and so I suppose the reason that comparatively few are lone assassins is that if you've got a planned, particularly a political objective. It often requires a wider network of people um, in order to have a better chance of success. You say that most assassins are men, but do we have any interesting examples of female killers through history? I think the earliest woman assassin that I write about is a poisoner called Locusta uh, in ancient Rome, an artist in poisons, they said. She was operating around about 50 AD, and she was alleged to have killed the Emperor Claudius and his son, among others. Um, she was also rewarded with large estates in the country by Nero for her trouble. But she, in the end, uh, justice caught up with her, and she was executed by Nero's successor. I, actually, coming right to the almost the present day, almost the most recent assassination that I write about in the book is the one very peculiar one that happened in 2017 in Kuala Lumpur Airport, where King Yong Nam, the disgraced brother of the North Korean dictator, was killed by an Indonesian woman and a Vietnamese woman who said that they thought they were taking part in some kind of television reality show and that they, they, they'd been told to rub this cream on his face as a prank. Uh, and the cream, unfortunately, uh, contained a deadly nerve agent which killed King Yong Nam. So uh, they are, I think, the only two assassins that I write about who successfully claim to have been duped. I mean, they, they claim that they were duped into doing what they did and, and both have now been released from prison. I was actually going to ask you about strange assassinations because you do cover quite a number in your book. Um, perhaps you can give our listeners some examples of some, you know, frankly bizarre cases that you came across. Well, there are lots of failed bizarre ones. And I think there was an attempt to use an exploding toothpaste tube against an African leader, for example. But in terms of bizarre assassination attempts that succeeded. One of the most weird, uh, the victim was a man called Jörg Jenach, who was one of the leading Swiss figures in the Thirty Years' War, that terrible conflict that disfigured Central Europe for three decades. It happened in 1639 during a carnival, and a crowd of people in fancy dress surrounded Jenach, and Yenach had people with him and they thought it was all good-natured. And then one of this crowd, who was dressed as a bear, produced an axe and hacked Yenach to death. Perhaps even more weird, though, uh, if we go back about a thousand years, so 995, King Kenneth II of Scotland um, 
had put to death the son of a woman called Lady Finella. And, and Lady Finella uh, saw the king out hunting one day. And Lady Finella, unbeknown to the king, had been hired by his enemies. And Lady Finella went to see the king and said uh, her son had deserved his fate and she was very sorry for what he'd done. And would she please, would the king please come to her house because she wanted to tell him about plots against him. And also she had a very nice little um, figurine, a statuette that she would like to show to him. Um, and he he was a bit iffy about it, but he said, oh, please, please. She said, please, please. Um, if you don't come to my house, I'll think you still believe I'm your enemy. So he was persuaded and he went to her house and she showed him this figurine of a boy. And apparently this figurine was booby-trapped and connected to a pile of hidden crossbows. And if anybody touched the figurine of the boy, it would set these crossbows off and all these crossbow arrows would be fired at whoever had touched the boy. So she said to the king, oh, well, if you touch his head, something really interesting happens. And so um, so curiosity killed the king. He, he touched the boy's head and he was then shot through by all these crossbow bolts. I think the one of the interesting things about that case, beyond the actual method of his death, is the fact that he was invited into her home on kind of good faith, really. And I guess I'm, I'm curious about the morality of of that you have a chapter in your book about the age about how this period was an age of chivalry but it's not really that chivalrous to bring someone into your home under good promises and then murder them i divided the book up into various historical periods so the wars of religion the age of revolution and one i call perhaps a bit ironically the age of chivalry um, which ran roughly from say the year 1000 to the reformation and one of the features, sadly, of the, the age of chivalry is that breach of faith was uh, was often a feature of assassination. So people went to a meeting where they believed they'd been promised safety uh, and were then let down. Um, there was also a disturbing trend, not just in the age of chivalry, but at other times for people to be murdered in churches or mosques. And uh, in the age of chivalry, I suppose one good example of um, of a breach of faith is when the Peasant Revolt happened in England, 1381, and there was a man called Wat Tyler was the leader of the peasants in revolt, and King Richard II, aged only 14, was King of England. And um, King Richard II was in a pretty tough spot, and basically he gave way to all the peasants' demands. So whatever they wanted. Yeah, get rid of serfdom, absolutely. Amnesty for everybody, no problem. And so whatever they demanded, he agreed to. And um, he went for a meeting with Watt Tyler uh, in a big field, Smithfield, uh, which is not a big field anymore, but was in those days a, a field outside the city of London. And um, Watt Tyler rode up uh, for what he thought was a parley with the king. And uh, and the king got his uh, one of his advisors um, to stab Tyler to death, and so Tyler was stabbed to death, fell from his horse, and um, Richard, with extraordinary coolness, you have to say, uh, 
could see that Tyler's people, who were too far away to see the detail of what had happened, but could see something had gone wrong, he rode over to them and said, uh, you want a captain? I will be your captain. Follow me. And he led them off away from the area where Tyler had been killed. And, um, and then he promptly got them surrounded by regular troops. And uh, they were told that they'd better get home quick before it was too late. And all the promises that had been made were ripped up. And, uh, and Tyler was done to death and his head was put on a spike on London Bridge so they could look at it as they went home to Kent. We're familiar with suicide bombers today, but does this type of killer, so aka one who's willing to take his own life, crop up further back in history? Um, Do we have examples of of suicide assassinations? Well, Machiavelli said that the hardest assassin to stop is the one who's not afraid of being killed. And um, if we go right back to ancient China, there is a story of a man called Prince Guang, who believed he'd been cheated out of his kingdom by his uncle, King Liao, and wanted to get revenge on King Liao. But King Liao was always very well protected. So one day, Prince Guang hired a man called Zhuan Zhu, who was apparently a mountain of a man, very big man, and commissioned him to kill King Liao. And... Um, Zhuan Zhu went to the lengths of learning to be a chef. He became a a top chef and wormed his way into the confidence of King Liao uh, and cooked these wonderful dishes for him. And one day he cooked this marvellous fish in which he had concealed a dagger. And so he took the fish into the king. And while everybody was enjoying the aromas that were emanating from this wonderful fish, he grabbed the dagger and stabbed the king to death. Now, he knew that the king's guards would immediately fall upon him and kill him, and they did. Um, So that, I suppose, is one example of not exactly a suicide killing, but somebody who who knew that death was almost certainly going to be the outcome of a successful assassination. So one thing we haven't really talked about, and I'm aware that we're near the end of the podcast now, are failed assassinations. Um, So would you mind giving our listeners some examples? Hitler, Napoleon and Mussolini all survived assassination attempts. And uh, Hitler, a number of assassination attempts. The most famous one, I suppose, was von Stauffenberg's plot. But that happened very late on in the war, by the time Hitler had done most of the damage that he was going to do. Um, More tantalising is the story of a communist carpenter called Georg Elser, who in 1939 spent months making a hidden cavity in a stone pillar in a Munich beer keller, where he knew Hitler would be speaking on the 8th of November, 1939. And the reason he knew that was because the beer keller was the site of Hitler's failed putsch, his failed coup in the 1920s. uh, And the 8th of November was the anniversary of that failed coup. So he knew that Hitler would not miss that occasion. And so he carved out this hidden cavity, put in a time bomb, And it all worked perfectly. 
8th of November 1939, the time bomb went off exactly at the time that Georg Elsa had planned. It brought down the ceiling on the speaker's podium, killed eight people, but Hitler wasn't there because World War II had broken out by that point and Hitler had had to change his schedule. And so by the time the bomb exploded, he had left the building 13 minutes before. But I think the prize for failed assassinations has to go to those who tried to kill Fidel Castro. Um, Fidel Castro actually... um, was the subject of a documentary which is called something like um, 683 Ways to Kill Castro, uh, because that was the number of failed assassination attempts that his security services calculated had been made. And the CIA were behind a lot of those. And they, they tried all sorts of things. They tried exploding cigars, radio full of poison gas, a, a seashell that would explode at his favourite snorkelling spot, uh, And all of them misfired. And on the very day, actually, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, yet another attempt on Fidel Castro's life failed using a poisoned pen. So I think that uh, he has to to be... If you're looking for failures, I think the people who were trying to kill Castro probably win the gold medal. And he said, actually, if there was an Olympic event of beating assassination attempts, I would win the gold medal. That was John Withington. His book, Assassin's Deeds, A History of Assassination from Ancient Egypt to the Present Day, is out now published by Reaction. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on the military revolution on the Western Front. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.